This is episode number three with Matt Glazer. Hello, and welcome to the Creative Strings Podcast. I'm Christian Howes, violinist, educator, and music business entrepreneur. I hope these interviews will inspire you to be creative in your life, in your art, in your business, in every way. So without further ado, let's get to it. Hello, and thanks for tuning in. I'm really excited about today's episode. If you're a music teacher, if you're any kind of string player or classical musician, or someone's just interested in music education, psychology of music, and the scene for fiddle playing and alternative string playing as it's been evolving over the last 30 years and where it's going now, today is going to be really relevant for you and, and interesting. Matt Glazer has been at the confluence really, of this scene. As someone at the Berklee College of Music, he's been really at the epicenter. He's seen so much happen. So I'm excited about today's episode, and I hope you get a lot out of it. I do want to thank our sponsors at the Electric Violin Shop. If you go to electricviolinshop.com forward slash creative strings, they've got special discounts for you. And you can let them know I sent you. We all need tools as musicians, and the Electric Violin Shop helps us to have the tools to unleash our creativity, whether that's through amps or gear of any kind. And I want to thank them for supporting this entire project, the Creative Strings podcast in its first year. So with that, let's get into this episode with Matt Glazer. Thank you so much for being with me today to, to kind of just talk honestly about stuff that unites our community of quote-unquote creative string players. Thank you for asking me. I'm totally jazzed to talk to you, and uh, it's an honor. <laughs> so I just want to jump in. Uh, you know, For anybody that doesn't know, Matt Glazer is a jazz violinist, also folk. You play a lot of folk styles, um, classical music. I mean, you do everything. I, actually, you know, I don't use the term jazz violinist anymore because – what jazz violin is, is such, it's a thing that I don't really do anymore, but I really feel connected to swing music. So I refer to myself as a swing fiddle player. I really focused on trying to swing whatever that is. And I'm not trying to focus on things that people like yourself and other very amazing modern jazz players do so well. I feel like I can't really compete or, or I can, it's not my interest to be in that world. Uh, and there are so many people doing that so well that I feel like I view myself as a swing fiddle player. I guess since I've gotten this job as the director of the American Roots Music Program, my job has kind of shifted my own musical focus in a way. And also, as I've aged, I kind of came to the realization that time is not unlimited. And you you don't have forever on this earth. So I try and really, I'm really trying to focus on what are the things that I can bring to 
the musical world as a player and as a teacher and let go of everything else because I don't really have enough time to do all these things, nor do I have a time to do them even badly. So I'd rather focus on the few things that I believe deeply and also believe musically and let other people do what they believe musically deeply. So that's, that's kind of my philosophy where I'm at right now. Every musician, if they are honest in apprising themselves accurately, they would feel like, okay, well, I, I have these skills and talents and I do certain things well, and I also, there's a lot that I don't know. So in that sense, everybody is in the same bag. We're all in the same bag, that we all have things that we do well and are, are create, can be creative and uh, individually strong, and also things that we don't know. And I always admire musicians who are like, I do these things and I'm growing. I'm still learning. I'm still growing. And I like the role of being the curmudgeon at school where I'm always telling the kids, hey, check this out. You obviously have never listened to this, <laughs> you know, and I can hear that in your playing that you've never listened to it. And they just laugh it off. I mean, I don't, <laughs> I don't think I'm able to hurt anyone's feelings any longer. But, you know, as opposed to, you know, you've been more active in terms of like, entrepreneurially going out there and creating this environment, the Creative Strings Workshop, and being a leader in a way that you've had to create things that didn't exist. For me, I got this job at Berkeley a long time ago, and I've just never left. And I haven't really done anything, for instance, just even financially. I never spent any of my own money like you have in trying to create something new. I just stay at Berkeley, and for 33 years, 34 years, I've been in my job, and I've watched an enormous number of people come through and, and also almost generations of different string players. I ran into a couple at the library today who are in the folk music scene. And I was saying, look, you know, in 1999, the freshman class at Berkeley included Rashad Eggleston, Carrie Rodriguez, Evan Price, Mads Tolling, Hanukkah Castle, April Virch. Well, on and on. And I'm sure I'm forgetting many people, but all of these people have now gone on to become kind of stars in this scene, and now I'm getting their students, or their students' students. So, And that's just even the midpoint, you know, for by the time they came to Berkeley, I had already been there for 20 years. So you watch these waves go of, of uh, groups of students come, there must be some kind of nuclear fission or fusion takes place. There has to be some kind of chemical reaction, and suddenly there are all these great kids, and then it waxes and wanes a little bit, and then it comes back. Now we're at a point where just the level is incredibly high across all these styles. All these kids can play old-time music. You know, that was the first style of music that got me to play the fiddle, old-time fiddling. I've never learned how to do it properly. Hmm. I'm not nearly as good an old-time fiddler as almost any of the students at Berkeley. <laughs> but I still totally love it. Bruce Molsky is an ongoing visiting professor in what we do. And I once traded lessons with him. He wanted to learn some jazz. So I taught him Fly Me to the Moon. And he immediately got it and could play the changes. And he showed me a bowing on the open strings. And I still can't do it. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, at, so Berkeley is a place, the Berkeley String Department now is a place where there are all these great jazz people, Rob and Jason and people teaching at a very high level jazz and students playing at a very high level UG. Gene running a string orchestra that's unlike any string orchestra in the world. World music meets jazz, meets fiddling styles. So, so it's intensely 
creative and at a super high level. And the vibes are also very good. There's a really wonderful sense of community and vibe. And all these fiddlers, I mean, tons of the world's greatest fiddlers are there. So it's very exciting. I'm at the point where I just like, I pinch myself that I get to come to Berkeley every day and hang around a place with all these amazing musicians. I mean, you must feel this, you must feel the same way at your camps. Like, look at this. Before, there didn't used to be Billy Contreras and Jason Anik and Alex Hargraves and all these cats, you know, now they're there. And, and would you say that, that the trend is kind of catching on more now than it, than it had ever before or, or not? It's growing that the quote unquote movement or whatever in string education has has really shifted. Oh, yeah. and, and Oh, my God. And why then, or when did it start shifting, or why did it finally catch on, or why did it take so long? Why did, Was there a lag with string players as opposed to jazz players and rock players? Can you comment on any of that? You know, if you narrowly define jazz violin, that's still a fairly esoteric world, in my opinion. Like, Jason was just posting about this Sabine Seifert competition, which you and I are too old <laughs> enter and Feldman is right. one of the judges and um, right. that's a very high level thing that's fairly esoteric I mean just even the awareness of Zabinu Seifert as a guy who was this incredible monstrous Coltrane jazz violinist who died of a brain tumor it's still fairly esoteric but the jazz violinists are in a community of which they're just one part really as, as string players Whereas when, I think when Daryl and I were friends in the early 1980s, there was much more of a separation between fiddlers and jazz violinists. There wasn't yet this sense of communitarian. And that's where possibly this, although the terms are already, are certainly screwed up like alternative styles. I think I'm, I'm responsible for that terrible name. <laughs> I probably am responsible for it in a phone call years ago <laughs> with with it, uh, about Asta, about stuff. And my thought was only that it was strategic in the sense of like sure. conjoining all the styles that are not Western European classical styles. And that's indeed what I think has happened to a certain extent. And that then becomes this massive thing that not only are there all these styles that involve groove and improvisation and that are not just reading off the printed page. And the kids then are all together at these camps. I think that was a very good thing where, you know, there were all these high-level string players across different styles. And the kids then begin to get a sense of like, you know what? I should be able to do all of this. I often sing, I often sing for those I love. So, but maybe that alternate right. styles relates to that idea. And that's become something where inevitably the classical world has had to come to grips with this, like this tsunami of young players playing fiddle tunes of various, and even within the fiddle world, you know, Celtic, Canadian, <laughs> old-timey, bluegrass. There's mutual incomprehension between these various <laughs> styles, not only between jazz and these styles. The bluegrass players are not the same <laughs> as the old-time players. To you know, to a jazz musician, right. they don't know. They right. think it's all uh, like a jazz saxophone right. player has no idea that there are all these subtle differentiations between these styles. And just as there is in jazz, mutual yep. incomprehension between Sunny Stid bebop kind of guys and more Coltrane guys, Matheny ECM guys. 
early jazz and swing guys, the downtown, downtown yeah. they hate each other or they don't feel comfortable playing with one another. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. And well, it's, it's a good point that you made using this term alt styles at one point, it may have been really smart. I mean, 15 <laughs> years ago and it did kind of like you're saying, it kind of bonded everybody together and gave us this power in numbers. And, you know, I guess what I've been saying for a while is that I feel like when people use the word alternative styles, there's kind of a convoluted conversation around it within music education. Now I'm talking about teachers, you know, teachers in orchestra programs around the country, you know, the American String Teachers Association, these kinds of teachers, private teachers, because they're not really sure, well, what is it that I should be learning or what is it that I should be teaching? If I had to lay it out, I would say it's these three things. It's that we need to add these things to classical education so that every string teacher out there is aware that in addition to Everything else that they teach for classical training, they should also teach harmony, improvisation, and some form of vault styles. Do you agree with that, or would you add to that, or change I, that? I, I change it slight. I would change it slightly. I would boil it down a little, simplify it because I think the fundamental things that are necessary for everybody would be theme and variations, the ability to vary a theme, which is a little bit less highfalutin than creativity or composition. It's something that every musician, I believe, should be able to take a melody and vary it slightly. And that's really the way in which classical composers would take melodies and make up variations on it. And the ability to vary a theme conjoins the creativity of fiddlers and jazz violinists. And I think the harmony part is further down the road and very important. But so also the rhythmics component is very, very important. So I got this award from Asta. I, I had them take famous classical melodies and just play the melodic rhythm of the melodies. So Ba ba da ba ba da ba ba da ba 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 da ba ba da ba ba da. That's Mozart's fortieth. Da 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 da. Which is very similar to ya da 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 da. Which is third Brandenburg. Ba ba da doodle da ba do di ba. Which is similar to da 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 di ba ba da ba ba da ba. So you begin to see these rhythmic patterns underneath all kinds of, which is similar to, um, or then there's another great one would be. Boba Pada, which is the bridge to Turkey and the Straw, Boba Pada, Boba Pada, which is the Bill Monroe tune Stony Lonesome, Boba Pada, Boba Da, Boba Bada, which is the Bebop tune Ubop Shabam, Ubop Shabam, Kayugi Bop. Sounds like there's got to be a ragtime thing for that, too. Yes, yeah, yeah, it's called the. The Entertainer. And it's called the Cakewalk Rhythm, and it's a rhythm that it was the black slaves imitating their stuck-up white masters when the whites were not in the room, they would do this rhythm that was jerky, that imitated stuck-up whites. So for me, I boil it down. I feel like you and I would work well in this thing because I feel like what I'm doing is slightly less advanced than what you're doing. So initially, I would suggest that people learn to vary a melody and do fundamental rhythmic things to start with. And that gets the groove, conjoins the groove component. I've got to, I've got to just drill a little deeper into that because you've talked to me about this before and I've actually borrowed this 
from you to teach uh, a, a part of my curriculum based on borrowing it from you. And it was, you know, this idea of micro improvisation. If you don't mind me just lamely trying to characterize it based on what I remember from you. I mean, you wrote your dissertation on uh, the recorded performance of, of Mark O'Connor, you know, and basically you talked about how he played this one lick, which is the tag, which goes, and he played it like 43 times and he never played it the same way in that piece. Yeah. And so you, and, and so what I've taken from that, and this is a an exercise I do with people. In fact, literally, I take that line and I say, let's everybody, I don't care if it's 50 people in the same room, I say, we're all just going to play this line like 20 times in a row. But every time I want you to try to change it a little bit, just a little tiny bit. Yeah, I'm fascinated because by this. the idea, I think a lot of us get thrown off because we think that when we improvise, we have to reinvent the wheel, but we don't. We can take little tiny risks and that's enough. Mm -hmm. I mean, and, and so I may have totally distorted your idea. No, exactly. But it's exactly right. And for me also personally, I become more interested in each successive moment of music. Uh, too much jazz that I hear at Berkeley, for instance, doesn't sound grounded in the present moment. And that also, like, I remember this quote that really blew my mind from Igor Stravinsky. He said, a composer hears intervals and rhythms. That's it. You hear <laughs> intervals and rhythm. That's all there is. In, that's all there is in music is intervals and rhythms. And I'm not really yet controlling my intervals, I can't hear them well. I can't hear the next note clearly that I want to play. And I can't hear all these little fundamental rhythms, seed rhythms, and really lay it down to the beat where I want to, exactly where I want to put it. So, and that also works well for me in my job with the Roots program, because that's a very rootsy approach to all this stuff. So I don't have to worry about the more advanced long form stuff, the more advanced harmonic things the chordal things, which, I mean, I've always been interested in that stuff, but now I'm more obsessed with what's happening moment to moment. And there's a jazz component to this. I mean, Charlie Hayden just died. He was one of the great guys. I told him once I heard him play with Quartet West, his band, and I said, Charlie, it sounds like three guys playing jazz and one guy playing music. <laughs> <laughs> and he appreciated that. And he and Lee Konitz are guys who I always characterize in my mind as kind of folk improvisers. Mm. They're, they're very heavy jazz cats, but their approach is very, very simple and very grounded in a, in a way that's kind of timeless. That's interesting. So I would love as a project, and tell me if you agree with this, is it even worth trying to codify is the right word, but sort of trying to present, hey, the old styles movement, this is what we want to pass on to classical teachers, teachers that want to augment the musicianship of their students to, to help students have a more sustainable musicianship. I like to use that word sustainable yeah, musicianship, because yeah. to me, it's the idea of sustaining your relationship with music through your life, whether or not you're a part of like an infrastructure, like an orchestra. Right. And that's, I think, what we do speaks to that, you know, mm. but also 
I think of this idea of empowering musicians, you know, because when I was a classical musician, before I learned about harmony or improvisation, I felt disempowered because I felt, well, I need to have, you know, charts and I need to have an orchestra and, a, yeah. you know, and a conductor. Yeah, yeah. And even if I want to, like, sing my kids to sleep at night, like, I couldn't accompany, like, the, the melody mm. in my head, you know. And so I feel, to me, it's like, well, I feel more empowered as a musician. One of my battles is going out when I go out as an educator in the schools and I was in, like, like 50 school districts last year, and we'll do it again this year, is a lot of times people hear, oh, Chris Housie's a jazz violinist. He's going to come try to teach us jazz. Well, I love jazz as a performer, but as an educator, I want to steer as far away as I can because it's like a, it's like a four-letter word, you know, literally. Not everybody wants to learn jazz. They don't want to learn bebop. They don't want to learn two five ones and Charlie Parker licks, right? And that's not what I'm necessarily trying to teach them. So what do you, what do you teach them? What do you leave them with after, after Chris Howe's visit with these folks? What do they take away? Basically, the things we've been talking about, like, you know, I want them to not be intimidated about being creative mm -hmm. in one way or another. Yeah, like, yeah, and, and, yeah. and to feel like, okay, now I have some strategies where I can practice and apply being creative. Number two, I want to demystify sort of harmony and theory. And number three, maybe give them a little bit of a flavor of different styles of music and show them what's possible. So, you know, but what you're saying is, well, talk to them more about the rhythmic component and also talk to them about theme and variation. I mean, I don't think we're disagreeing. I think it's no, just... It's just it's, Absolutely not. And, you know, it's funny. I remember just where that alternative styles term came from. Mm. Um, I was imagining that classical music was equivalent to regular medicine and mm. people go to right. alternative doctors, you know, sure. which includes chiropractors and acupuncturists and massage therapists. So I thought, well, why not make us into, if classical music is like the allopathic medicine, <laughs> right. there will be the other things. But, you know, I, so one way to do it that I do it with people a lot is to find the skeletal melody of anything, the, boil the melody down to a skeleton. If you're going to make theme and variations, it's often very hard to do that on any melody because it's already fairly Ornamented. composed. If there's a lot of stuff going on, you got to boil it down. So, I mean, that's how I practice. Like, I've been trying to work on my five-string chops. I've been working on the Bach cello suites. Like, you play some of the Bach cello suites, right? Mm -hmm. you, you have that amazing video. So I just boil it down to the core pitches and then make up variations mm -hmm. on those core pitches. No, it's the pitches that usually fall on the strong beats. Uh -huh. And then you, it makes once you know those simple pitches and you see where they are, you can make up variations easily by maintaining those skeletal points. Yeah, um, right. And that's something that people, you don't need to be, you know, almost anyone can grasp that if they think about it for a few minutes. Some melodies already created in a more skeletal way. Like if you think about Twinkle Twinkle Little Star, for example, like that to me seems like mm. it's already a skeletal melody, right? Because it's like one melody note per chord change. So that might be the type of thing where you could more easily ornament. I, I don't know. Tell me if I'm grasping. No, that's interesting. I mean, so that's a question I've wondered about. Like if it, the skeletal melody would be half in half notes, probably. So bo right. bo the, you know, instead of repeating right. the tones. Right. And so that allows the person then to play other quarter, you know, play quarter notes where they hit, hit those tones and then right. other tones. And again, they're immediately in that thing of intervals, hearing the next note. Uh, it br brings them back down to the present moment and what's the next note that you're going to play. And can you hear that note in your ear? 
instead of letting your fingers do it, you know, mm-hmm. trying to create more. And again, something this that conjoins all these styles would be ear to hand coordination, the ability to hear something with your inner ear, sing it, let's say, and then play it on your ex. Almost no classical players have arrived at things that way, except I remember like there was a blind classical violinist who said he had learned most pieces by ear. He had learned his. Well, you know, a lot of people say that to me, Matt, and I hate to disagree with you again, but I mean, you know, as a Suzuki trained kid, I learned by ear. My son and my daughter both learned by ear. I mean, I feel like a lot of Suzuki trained classical players learn by ear and they have that ability to hear something and then play it, you know, but maybe in my experience in 35 years at Berkeley, the best most natural improvisers were the ones who came out of the Suzuki bag. Wow. I just noticed that. I don't know anything about Suzuki, but I noticed in my mind, I always made a point when I saw somebody who said, uh, you know, they were a natural player, they had good ears. And it's like, oh, I came out of Suzuki. So, you know, I, you're right about that. Well, I mean, I feel like I had just as many problems trying to get into improvisation, learn about harmony. Like, I had a lot of other problems, but I didn't have a problem hearing melody. That's all I mean. And I mean, but I think a lot of Suzuki-trained musicians are really good, you know, violinists, and they're really good musicians. But there are things that Suzuki should augment. I mean, the kids should learn to hear harmony, um, and they should do more improvisation, and they should hear different types of tunes. That's why it is cool to have boil them cabbages down, you know, or whatever is a tune for kids to play and, you know, mix it up a little bit, but it's good to hear that. So, I mean, in terms of this idea that, okay, so there's an alt styles camp and there's a classical camp, I'm sure you and me both agree, like, that the future of music education, we both want it just to be everybody plays music, right? I, I really don't know the answer to this because all I can tell you is that in my little world, I have so much to learn in my little world, yet it's staggering. Like, okay, I'm trying to do this roots music thing, so I've defined roots music as American music from 1900 to 1950, especially rural music. It's such a vast area. And just to learn about the Mm. field, I want to learn about my own Mm. field. It's vast. So any one of these worlds is so vast and time is limited. And so for me, a question is, how does one prioritize Mm. And what what does one choose to focus on? And what does one ask students to focus Mm. on? Um, I don't anymore have to, I don't have to really have an opinion about this anymore because I just have my little job (laughs) and I do my job. I don't have to make, you know, this is above my pay scale, as they say, this answer. But I mean, it is interesting. It's interesting to watch how it's going to affect string playing in the United States going forward because I, I sense from what you're saying that string teachers are a little freaked out in America like because they know they shouldn't be teaching just classical but they don't know anything else about this other stuff really and they don't know how to go about including it in and uh, so they're they feel a little bit I guess lost. that's interesting I appreciate you're always so diplomatic and you don't want to just come out and say you disagree with me you know I appreciate but but that's that's good you know because I know from a standpoint of someone who's running a college department you make a lot of good points like a college has to do what they do. And so they're in a difficult position. But I feel like young musicians should be more well-rounded. Can I put it that way? Could we at least agree on that? I mean, like jazz musicians need to learn their instruments, like as well as classical players do, right? And they need to learn to read. But classical musicians need to learn to improvise and they need to learn about theory. And you would agree with that, right? Or do you think people should be specialists their, their whole lives? It's very interesting. I can only discuss this empirically. That is, in my mind, I'm thinking of human beings that I know. Are you thinking of somebody like Jeremy Kittle as an example of somebody who is deeply well-rounded and is superb at at a number of things? Well, sure. 
there are not many other people who are as superb at as many different things. You know, there are not that many people like that. I just, his name came to my mind. It recently at Berkeley, we've had two examples of people who chose different paths. Both of them, Bronwyn Keith Hines and Jenna Moynihan, both came to Berkeley as fabulous Celtic fiddlers. That's all they did. And Jenna decided to go deeper into her trip and become like literally one of the world's greatest Celtic fiddlers. And she grew as a musician in a variety of ways. Bronwyn decided to master bluegrass and other related styles. And they're both amazing. These were like decisions they both made about how to learn. And Bronwyn now works as a professional musician in a variety of kinds of contexts and is able to play lots of gigs. Jenna is a deep, deep artist who can probably play fewer gigs because she's not a kind of person you would call up for anything. She does her beautiful mm. thing. So yeah. they're both amazing. They both sound incredible. And they both thought about right. how to be a musician yeah. in different ways. I wouldn't say one is better than the other. They both came up with approaches that yeah, work well, that for each of That makes a lot of sense, them. yeah. So and not everybody's the same kind of person. Mm. And, you know, not everyone could be Jeremy Kittle. Mm. Uh, so some people are more naturally inclined to choose to go deeper into one thing. Yep. And other people are more naturally inclined to spread themselves wider and check out more things. This responsibility of, of teachers in a generic sense, you know, to offer the best chance for kids to, to be musicians, right? To, and not just great string players, but to make the most of music. I don't know. Would, would you agree with that? Or Everyone, I mean, a lot of people might have slightly different approaches to this. For me, I come back to the things that seem to be important to me, and I try to convince other people that they should be important to them. And those things are, you should have heard music. You should have listened to music because the substance of this field that we're in is music. And there's a history. You're not an isolated person. And if you were a philosopher, you would have read Plato. And if you had an opinion about philosophy and you'd never read Plato, people would say, what are you talking about? You you never read Plato and you don't know what you're talking about. So, so if you're a musician, you should have listened to music, especially in the music of your field. And luckily for us, a lot of great music has been recorded. And so people can have listened to music. And this is especially a danger with jazz because there's all this pedagogy that's evolved about learning how to play jazz and people learn how to do this thing and they haven't really listened to much of the music. 
And so they've learned these skill sets, but the existential message of the music or whatever's communicated like mother's milk through the sound is something that they don't have. As Ruby Braff once said, if you've never listened to Louis Armstrong, nothing you play will be of any interest to me. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's a fairly extreme way of framing that, but I feel very strongly like Matt Munisteri and I were talking about this. We can tell what people have listened to and what they haven't listened mm-hmm. to. So that to me is just a kind of general educational thing. If you're a classical musician, you should have listened to the great works of classical, at least string playing. You should be familiar with that music. If you're a jazz player, you should have listened to the great musicians in jazz. You know, Bruce Molsky makes all the students listen to these recordings of old-time fiddlers. He doesn't want them just to learn from Bruce Molsky. Mm -hmm. He wants them to go back to the sources. So I believe that strongly. So the things you and I, I think, would agree on then would be that all musicians should be able to be creative in some way and not automatons. That is, they should be able to function creatively in the moment and not be just, you know, machines. So we might have different approaches about how to get people to that point, but we would agree that that's a very important thing, that they be able to be creative. Walk down any street, many lost souls you'll meet. Those lives are broken like mine. Well, you know that this alt styles movement at the American String Teachers Association conferences, you know the ASTA conferences. Obviously, that's become a bigger focus now at the conferences, and so there are a lot of people out there kind of selling the different methods or whatever you know to do this. So, has that been working, or is it not working? What needs to be different about that so that you know so that string teaching around the country is catching on? You know, or do you have an opinion? As you notice, I don't go to those conferences, <laughs> and I don't I don't get on air. I don't travel anymore if I can avoid it. So you know much more about I have a job and I'm very I'm very happy at Berkeley. I let everything come to me. You know, I don't you know I just stay in my office and the world comes to me. You, you, you are the center. You're the center of the world. That's why. I don't I don't have to go anywhere. So I that means I also don't know what's happening in right in, in Kansas Lake, in a high school in Kansas or wherever. I have no idea. I mean once in a while I'll go to a class and I do my normal I do the same thing wherever I go. I'll teach them Mary Had a Little Lamb and I'll have them make up variations on Mary Had a Little Lamb, you know, similar to Twinkle Twinkle Little Star. And uh, I often hear when I, the few times I travel, people say, oh, Chris Howes was, was here recently. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, well, that's, that's great. You know, if you don't mind me pivoting a little bit, you know, for young string players, young musicians, even if they're not a string player, let's say maybe they're a classically trained musician, maybe they're not. What is you? Because you see kids that come into the Berkeley College Music Program at age seventeen, eighteen, twenty, twenty-one. What is what is the thing that actually is going to help that kid to succeed? You know, as an artist and to have like a long-term, like sustainable career that's healthy and a part of a balanced life. Like, do you have any opinions about that? I mean, I do as a person, you know, and I tell people what I believe as a human being. I I just report to the students what I've found in my own life, which is that music is a healing force in the universe. And just playing your instrument can be a transformative thing. Apart from any considerations of career or gigging, 
Uh, if I'm in a bad mood, and other people have said this and noticed this, if I'm in a bad mood and I just go downstairs and play the fiddle a little bit, like play a fiddle tune for a while or improvise on a tune with the metronome, I'm in a better state of mind. It's pretty amazing. years. Another thing I've moved away from as I've gotten older is even concerns about whether something is good or bad. I don't really care that something is good or bad. Music is inherently good. It's a good thing. And whether or not you're performing it or at the moment good or bad is something that that mindset is so crippling and is so pervasive that I don't think we really particularly need to hammer it anymore. <laughs> everyone's so down on themselves and everyone's so aware of their own shortcomings as a player. And it's depressing to play a bowed string instrument. It's very difficult. Like Daryl says about fiddle camps, you know, if you want to, the first thing you learn at fiddle camp is you suck. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, yeah, I asked Yo-Yo Ma. I, I happened to see to watch like a Yo-Yo Ma masterclass one time, and I and I asked him a stupid question. I said, "Well, you're so busy, you know, Mister Ma. I assume that you don't really have time to practice or whatever." And he said, "Well, you know, it's a lifetime project to try to play in tune on the cello." He says, "So everybody, anybody who's a string player, you just have to keep working on it your entire life, you know, to play in tune." So what you're saying, you can't stress that enough. Like playing the violin or playing the cello, it's not the same as just like sitting down at the piano and touching the keys and they sound beautiful right it takes it's it's unforgiving as you said you're right you and and wow. and and so you're talking about i wanted to ask you separately about this but now you're really talking about the psychology of having sort of a healthy state of mind as as a musician and being comfortable with who you are and what your weaknesses are and what your strengths are and being able to hear other people that do something that you can't do but still feel comfortable with who you are that's kind of what you're talking about now right i mean yeah the, it's funny that professional musicians have lost sight often of this incredible spiritual gift that is music i mean it's possible to lose sight of it in the vicissitudes of being a professional musician and gigs and struggles and blah 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 I think it's important to not lose sight of that and the spiritual food that is music. So just listening to music can be helpful in that regard. I, I try to spend some time every day listening to music. Not everybody does that. Like I try to maybe spend a half an hour at night before I go to sleep with my iPod, just listening to things and following things through. And it can really remind you about things. You is know? this almost like saying like it's about the music or just like don't like focus on the music and don't focus on your own ego? Or I mean, that would that be a way to paraphrase what you're saying? Like, I don't know if you feel this way. Sometimes when I either playing or listening to music, you feel like you've entered this gigantic universe that's closed to you when you're not involved in the music. So when you're at the airport or you're at the laundromat, you're in this closed world. And then music can open up this gigantic universe to you in which you're with all the spirits of all these amazing human beings who are now dead, but are more like I often say, Kenny G's music is dead, but his body is alive. <laughs> Mozart's body is dead, but his music is alive. You know what I'm saying? I mean, there, it does, it's the accident of physical life or death. Am I wrong about this? I mean, Louis Armstrong is more alive than Kenny G is, even though Kenny G's body is alive. 
His music is not alive. Well, for somebody, look, maybe it is, right? I mean, you know, but oh, yeah, but anyway, oh, yeah. I'm just trying to make a yeah, point right. here. <laughs> so it's possible to spend time with Johann Sebastian Bach mm. or Charlie Parker or Duke Ellington, these people who are dead, and yet you spend time with their creative world, and it's so vast. Or lesser, I mean, I got into this whole Paul Gonzalez kick. Paul Gonzalez, the great tenor saxophonist who played with Duke Ellington. I would listen to Paul Gonzalez every night, listen to play these 27 choruses on the blues, and it was swinging and so joyful and everything, and I'd try to sing along with it, and I felt like I was doing more for myself as a musician than if I had like practiced fruitlessly, my hands are getting stiff, I can't execute stuff, and I, I, I've gotten off topic. No, here. no, I, I think I'm, just, I'm trying to find how it is related. I mean, it sounds like, I mean, cause I'm, I'm assuming that maybe when you were younger, you may have struggled just like, I mean, not everybody does. I mean, some people don't ever are never self-critical and maybe some of those people are blissfully ignorant of their weaknesses, but other people maybe like, like you or maybe like me are really critical, you know, or have been at times in our life and self-judgmental and, and, and then it creates insecurity. Did you ever feel that way in your life about your violin playing or your music? Absolutely. And, you know, my violin playing is less technically secure than it's ever been at any point. It's my, my technique has been a steady downward slide uh, since I, I listened to recordings of myself when I was 19 or 20. And I was never a great, physically a great violinist, but I had more physical chops in those days. But I noticed something, which is that what people say doesn't affect me in any way, ultimately. And nothing has really changed in my life. And, and even, and playing badly is also very freeing because nothing changes. I have a job at Berkeley. And in that sense, I'm freed because I don't have to worry about whether playing badly on a gig will result in me not having a gig. I don't have any gigs, period, <laughs> under any circumstances. So I don't have to worry. I just have my job. And so I don't want to play badly. I prefer to play well. And I'm serious about my playing. And I try to critique it and try to make it better. But I also have tremendous physical struggles, tendonitis and, you know, limitations that increase physically. Mm -hmm. And... Some, you know, Daryl and I talk about this a lot. He's struggling also a, a, the aging body, and we talk about things we can't do physically that used to be easy for us to do. But by the same token, playing is more important to me than it's ever been, even though I can't physically execute certain things. There are other things about music that I am aware of now that are precious mm. to me and more important than ever before. certain things. This is something that happens in the lives of musicians. Their playing changes. It happened to Lester Young, who, you know, it happened to Louis Armstrong, Lee Konitz. Their people's playing changes as their body changes, as their life changes. You can't go backwards in life. Even if you wanted to, you can't. So then it becomes a mindfulness exercise. Here I am at this moment, regardless of even if I don't want to be at this here at this moment. And music is such a, a great training for mindfulness. Here I am at this moment. Okay, we had a bad flight. I ate a bad meal. I had an argument, blah, blah, blah. Okay, all well, that all happened. And now here I am with the violin. My hand hurts. I suck. I'm great. Whatever it's people or whatever they said, 
here we are at this moment. The music is happening. There's only that moment, that exact moment. The music is happening. There is no past. There is no future. You're playing in that moment. To me, that's such an incredibly precious lesson for music that it far transcends any good, bad career, blah, 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 shoulds. You know what I'm saying? And but but you know, so many people get in that moment and then they can't find their zone because they're freaked out. I mean, I guess I'm talking about a particular phenomenon that, that as you said, we see a lot in fiddle camps. You know, you're in that moment, but then you just heard some amazing player do this fantastic thing. And you're like, how am I going to follow that? So you did that to me once <laughs> at Berkeley. The worst example of that ever in my life was. You played, and I couldn't function after that. And I thank you for that. Uh, that was a great experience for me. It was a great learning experience. How did you learn from that or, or other experiences like that? And then how do you face the next moment and not feel that way? The best explanation of this is there's that book, The Inner Game of Music by Barry Green. And I saw him do a talk once at New England Conservatory. And he has this brilliant thing he did, which is he's playing the bass. He's playing some classical concerto. And he recorded in an echo chamber his own thoughts or what you know a parody of his own thoughts and he plays it through a speaker so he's playing and you hear through the speakers him saying "Uh oh you know soon i'm going to come to that point i remember the last time i played it i was so terrible and it's getting closer i'm going to hear it comes any second i hope i practiced it enough because that part is coming up oh there it is i'm so terrible and what you realize from this is at no point is he in the present moment? Mm. He's either anticipating a thing to ha come in the future, or he's looking back on a terrible thing that happened in the past. Mm. And, you know, you sometimes you see people who are not very advanced musicians, but who are very in the moment. Mm. There was a guy who came to Berkeley summer program once who really had no technique whatsoever. He was so in the moment of playing. That's such an amazing thing each moment. Because here we are, we, you know, it's a lesson. We can't do things about so many things in life, but we're in this particular moment with our instruments and with other people. And so even if the moment is excruciating, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It could be an excruciating moment. What I'm taking away from it is is kind of like, yeah, you know, trying to focus on being in the moment, you know, also trying to focus on the reason that we play music, you know, the healing function, the spiritual nature of music, you know, because this has been something that I've struggled with, I'll be honest about it, you know, and as a teacher, it's something I see a lot and, and running a camp, you know, we see it a lot during the camps when certain people, and this isn't necessarily about age or level, I mean, some of the most advanced people, some of the older people, they're breaking down, they're freaking out, you know, and and a lot of the, you know, classical virtuosos I talk to that want to learn about improvisation, but they just get so down on themselves. My theory is that it's because we're tying what we do to our self-image so strongly, you know, it's, it's hard for us not to sometimes, that we have to accept ourselves for our weaknesses and our strengths and really believe that there's something special that only I and only you, there's something special that we have to give because every person has that, right? And Yeah, don't you say embrace the suck? Is that your expression? <laughs> I may. 
maybe I may have said that. <laughs> yeah. People quote you as saying that <laughs> okay. a, a lot of that's something that at Berkeley people say as Christian House used to say. Oh, okay, in a lesson <laughs> I probably told a student that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you know, it's interesting if you think about it. If you go on YouTube, it just shows you. Imagine that the two voices in your head were two different people. They're just two different opinions. Sometimes you have one opinion about yourself. Sometimes you have another opinion. Every great performance you watch on YouTube, you can always find somebody didn't like it. I'm always like, you don't like Charlie Parker? <laughs> you don't, who are you? Right. You don't like that? You don't, I mean, whoever you, you could find the most amazing thing and somebody won't like it or <laughs> something that you think is crap that everybody loves. So it doesn't really matter whether you like it or you don't like it. And you certainly cannot trust your own judgment in the moment mm -hmm. about it. That's for sure. If I've learned anything is that my own judgment in the moment cannot be trusted. Like I could be thinking, I suck. This is the worst I've ever sounded. I listen back. It's not so bad. Other times I think I'm bad. I'm so bad. And so you got to suspend judgment about the thing and just somehow find a way to be present in the moment of the music. Hayes is a good friend of mine. Do you know but him? You've talked to me a lot about him. I've heard his music and I'm really, yeah, it's amazing. You know, he's a guy, you know, very famous Irish fiddler, one of the top and has a deeply spiritual approach to playing. And we, you know, whenever I get together with him, we talk about this stuff. And he said to me recently when he was here, you can't go by externalities. He said he and Dennis Cahill played horribly. They knew it was terrible. They couldn't connect to the emotional place. They couldn't connect to each other emotionally. And they've got off the stage and, and people gave them a standing ovation and they felt so terrible because they knew that they weren't bringing anything real to the moment and to each other and people went crazy. So it was all like a charade, mm -hmm. you know, and so it doesn't matter if everyone loves it. And just contrastingly, it doesn't matter if everybody hates it. Like Ornette Coleman, even if the whole world told him he sucked, right. he knew that there was something internal. So mm. you really have to develop a relationship with something internal for you that's true inside of yourself mm. and hold to that. Because people make fun of the greatest musicians. You know, Charlie Hayden, who just died. All these great musicians, people said, oh, he sucks. He has no technique. Do you think he let himself get swayed? By that, or, you know, if you look on, you know, every classical violinist has some people who they hate, they love. If you start listening to that, you know, you're, you're finished. You can't pay attention to that side. You've got to find, and it's a challenge. Well, what is the thing inside of you that's about music? What are you, why are you a musician? Why do you play music? Even if you were alone in a room on your last day on earth, would you want to play a tune? Because maybe, you know, that's where it's real. Do you want to play a tune in a room by yourself? Mm -hmm. Who cares about a million people and what they say? Mm. Uh, you know, I feel like picking up my violin and I want to hear this song. I want to play this song. I want to improvise. Like creativity shouldn't be about whether it's good or bad mm. or whether it's perfect or something for public consumption. You yeah, know? I love that. I mean, you know, how many people in the world want to hear jazz violin? So, so a lot of times I'll tell students, I'll say, look, when I know when I play a concert, maybe 70% of the people in the room may not even like it. But, you know, that's fine. You know, there's maybe 30% of the people that I that I reach or that I move and that's enough for me. And I also talk about, think about who your favorite artists are. And most of the time, your favorite artists are people that kind of had the courage to do something different and be themselves.
themselves. And it wasn't because they were virtuosic, you know, and you're talking about physical limitations, but I played with Les Paul up until when he died and he was basically working with two working fingers and, and a half working thumb, you know, and you think of Joni Mitchell, who's, who had severe, you know, physical issues. I think I heard she had polio. So she retuned the guitar and, you know, just a lot of people, the Beatles, I mean, were brilliant, but none of them were virtuosos, you know, and, and so I kind of, I like think that if we can all kind of have the courage to pursue the actualization sort of our voice as an artist, then whatever that is, just the uniqueness of it alone is going to be powerful and compelling to somebody. And there's that quote from Stravinsky, the more I surround myself with obstacles and limitations, the more I am free. Whatever diminishes constraint diminishes freedom because constraint forces you to take one specific action as opposed to this feeling of like, oh, I want to be free. You know, no, if you have these limitations, then there's a wall on this side of the house, there's a wall on this side of the house, there's a wall, and you make a little window and do your thing instead of an infinite field. You know, it's like, I love this idea of tremendous constraints because it frees me to just do one little thing, one creative act. I mean, and that's one of the main exercises I do when I work out with with teachers and, and string teachers talking about how to teach improvisation. I'm so glad you said it. I just want to go a little deeper into it because, for example, if you go up to a classically trained musician, you say, hey, just play something for me. They'll freak out, right? Because there's too much freedom. There's no constraint. Yes. So when you yes. have too many choices, you can't make a choice. You feel like you don't have any liberty. Uh -huh. But if you say, okay, so I'm now, you have to play eighth notes at this tempo and you can only play an A or a rest, it, then they, yeah. they can be creative, right? For example, right? So yeah, exactly. Exactly. And you do that also with this micro improvisation approach that we talked about earlier, which is let's only play this very specific skeletal melody. There's a skeletal melody, and you can only play eighth notes, or you can only play quarter notes, and you have to hold to the skeleton. And then it's like relaxing for a classical player, because they don't have to worry about it. They know that their bow is going to be going just like this, and they know the skeleton, and they have very limited but clear choices to make a few little choices. And that's what I like also in my own improvisation. I like to have a few little decisions to make. I have this idea on here. I'm going to do this. When you're like, when you're playing on a piece, like, you know, you're playing in somebody's band, you're going to improvise on a tune. Do you come up with strategies for how you might approach soloing on a tune? Do you come up with possibilities? Like, I think I'll, I might do this here. I have a couple of ideas. Maybe that I might follow that idea with this idea, or is it a completely a blank canvas for you? Well, I, I mean, I, I, I go back and forth in my mind about trying different approaches from time to time. But in general, the way I would answer that question is I would say that I have a checklist or like a tape loop that goes off in my head back and forth, which is the same kind of things you're talking about. It's like, okay, I can use rhythm. 
I can use different emotions. I can use different phrase lengths. I can use different harmonic approaches. I kind of try to keep that running list close at hand. And because then it's like, oh, I sound like crap right now. I don't have an idea. Okay, well, let me consult my checklist. Oh, listen to the drummer. That just fixed it. Or like play, uh, play short phrases. Think about my phrasing and then just a you know, make a constraint on my phrasing or an algorithm of constraints around my phrasing, right? And that's the same kind of checklist that any classical musician has, which is subdivide, you know, breathe, you know, listen for intonation, blah, blah, blah. But it's a creative checklist. You can't go wrong by telling people what you started with, which is play from a rhythmic standpoint, listen to the drummer, play something rhythmic, because that's really the thing that would differentiate these styles predominantly from not classical music, but the way classical music has come to be performed. And the best classical music is, of course, tremendously alive rhythmically. The best classical players are tremendously alive rhythmically. The worst classical players are the ones who are not alive rhythmically. So if you, to me, I came back to that. It's like, okay, swinging has to do with rhythm. I want to play from a rhythmic standpoint, and you know, the, and not only is it a rhythmic standpoint, but there's a particular rhythmic language. There are ry melodic rhythms, mm -hmm. hundreds, of thousands of them, that are a kind of language of swing music that I love, and I want to be able to play that melodic rhythmic language on a violin. So that is also restrictive to me in the sense of okay, everyone else can do Christian House and Jason Anik and all these guys can can play all this other stuff, but I know what I want to do here, and that also helps with the psychological component because it puts the focus back on yourself as this is doing what i yeah, like doing what you do like this is my yeah, I'm do you're me. not comparing yourself to other people they everyone can do whatever they want to do and i'm focused on what i want to do and that's very relaxing and it's not stressful because suddenly you're not in a comparative mode right. you're not comparing yourself to anybody else and that's what's so beautiful about as you said about improvising music if you think about jazz all these great players in jazz and how different they were from one another. Thelonious Monk compared to Oscar Peterson, compared to Errol Garner, compared to Count, I mean, just pianists. The Horace Silver, I mean, every one of them played the piano so differently. Their approach to the instrument was so different. All of them were incredibly great. They're not trying to be like the other guy. They're, Horace Silver is trying to be the best Horace Silver style piano player he can be. You know, so I want to be the best Mac Glazer style violin player I can be. And it's actually taken me a while to figure out what that is. And that's like the two students I said, Jenna Moynihan and Brown and Keith Hines. I appreciate they both decided to figure out Jenna was going to be the best Jenna Moynihan style fiddle player. Brownman was going to be the best Brownman Keith Hines style fiddle player. That's a very hip way of approaching your musical development. Yeah. It's very grounded. Aside from this, one of my original questions was this idea of for young people who are trying to pursue, you know, trying to start or looking towards having a career as a musician. I mean, we've talked about the psychology, and I think what you've said has been right on the money. But I mean, is there anything else that they should think about? I mean, you know, one of the things I always tell kids is like, well, you need to show up on time and be reliable and stuff. But is there anything else you would say, like, as far as 
because kids, they don't know how they're going to make it. I mean, this is a part of it. If they want to be a freelancer, I know you're not a freelancer necessarily, but what if they want to be a freelancer or they want to be a recording artist? What are the, the crucial things that you think that they should be doing? Should they go to Berkeley? Do they have to go to Berkeley? Should they not go to school? I mean, do you have any ideas about any of that quickly? I don't think anybody knows enough about the future to know the answer to any of these questions. <laughs> so, and I think that, I think it's important, it's important to be honest with people and say, all these geniuses in the music industry, nobody predicted the transition to CDs and then nobody predicted the demise of the CD to MP3s. Now the MP3s downloads are demising and what the, I mean, so the whole business plan of being a professional musician keeps shifting. And those things shift and, but being a musician is something that has always existed. And so I think that be a musician and adhere to being a musician as your way of life and as your spiritual path. Mm. And then do the best you can with the vicissitudes of the music industry, however those change, mm. uh, since we don't know. And, and so I think we could agree with some basic values, which is that you're well educated as a musician. You know, there's something to be said for flexibility and being able to function in different environments and situations, creativity, the ability to get along with other people. I mean, I would tell people to use me as a warning, as an example. <laughs> like, whatever personality traits I have, try to cultivate the opposite of those. <laughs> because I have no gigs, and maybe my personality is responsible for that. <laughs> That's, I'm going to take you with a great assault. Well, you know, um, the chair of the department of the, of the Roots, American Roots program at Berkeley, is that, how do you call that again? I'm sorry. It's the, I'm the artistic director of the American Roots music program. And, it, and if, and if people want to find you, I mean, Matt Glazer, they can, they can find you, um, are, do you have a website or they can just go to Berkeley College of Music website or? Yeah, yeah, you can find my email at the Berkeley website and also I'm on Facebook. I don't have my own website, but I use Facebook very aggressively to mostly to share my thoughts about things and post things that I'm interested in. So if anyone wants to friend me on Facebook, they can do that. <laughs> Well, well, as usual, Matt Glazer, you've, you've put me in my place, reminded me how much more I need to learn. And I mean, I look up to you so much and I want to thank you for sharing with, with me and with our Ditto. community. Ditto. I feel exactly the same way about you. Have a good night, Chris. We'll talk soon. All right. See you. Bye. All right. Take it easy. There it is. Every time I speak with Matt, it makes me feel like I need to go read some books or something in a good way. I want to thank you for tuning in today for this third episode and invite you to share your feedback. You can email me directly, chris at christianhouse.com and share your feedback. Uh, go over to the show notes and, and learn more about the music that we featured from Matt. Check out his new book, 
which is really exciting. It's all about coming up with sort of fiddle tunes over jazz changes. Matt is continuing to reinvent and do amazing things. Go to the show notes page, christianhouse.com, and you can find more links there. And as I said, reach out to me if you like, and if there's anything I can help with, I will do my best. Until next episode, I want to encourage you to stay creative.